In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know what happened in Paris over a week ago. You know that that 850-year-old structure, which to our American eyes and ears, we had no category for. The redwoods weren't even that tall 850 years ago. And yet when that building burned, it was as if the city was bleeding. It was as if the people had been wounded and were afflicted with something. And you saw the tape, and you saw what was going on, and you know that there were only all sorts of variety of responses of people witnessing that, that massive structure um, being consumed or being um, devastated by fire. Some people were absolutely weeping. Other people were cheering. And still others did something else that was rather remarkable, that was caught on tape in a number of places, and it was very spontaneous, and it was something like this. cathedral burns and people are motivated in real time without being invited to to sing they're singing a song to the mother of jesus in that moment and they're on their knees and it's this paris right the paris that lived past the french revolution the the paris that uh that was known by voltaire that he would know when the revolution was over when the last intestine of the last king strangled the last priest that paris that france and they're breaking into song. Why are they singing? Maybe we know a little. That's an expression of sorrow. It's an, an expression of solidarity. But I think we also might gather that they're singing because it's an expression of a hope that lives, to borrow a phrase from Tolkien, beyond the walls of the world. That there is a hope that even if everything around you is burning, that neither circumstances nor whatever degradation you might be experiencing, that that hope prevails. And that's why they sing. It is in part why we are singing this day. You may walk into this room for a whole different sets of reasons why you might feel wanting to mourn. And yet we too sing because there is a hope beyond the walls of the world. And we're going to listen to a passage this morning that captures the reason for singing because it's a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a people where something is beginning to, if you will, smolder among them, that if it catches fire, will burn them to the ground. And what is smoldering among them is a function of what is an affliction within them. And he's come to address it. And he's come to remind them of that hope that lives beyond the walls of the world. And the way he begins is with instruction. But by the time he ends this passage, he's broken into song himself. It's a poem, it's a hymn, we don't know. But it's lyrical, it's melodic, and it captures something in words that mere prose cannot. And so we're going to ask him, 
in the same question we're asking about them, in the same question maybe we're asking ourselves, why are we singing? Four reasons he's going to give us. Because at last we have a diagnosis of our problem. And that diagnosis is going to point us to a very clear remedy. And that remedy is going to point us to a very clear healer. And that healer is going to point us to a very clear prognosis. Four reasons why we might be singing. If you're able to stand, let's listen to what Paul had to say to the church at Philippi in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the hopeful word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are sick, And you are in pain and discomfort. That is its own struggle. But what compounds the struggle in a moment like that is if you don't know what the problem is. If all the best experts and scientists and doctors and researchers are out there and they are on the hunt to try to understand what is afflicting you, if they don't know, that is almost as bad as suffering the pain. And it's not until they can actually come up with a diagnosis that there's any sense of knowing what you're dealing with and maybe even knowing how to treat it. And therefore, a diagnosis is its own form of relief. If at last you know what's under the hood, if you will, what's going wrong, now you know where to go, maybe. Now you know what to do. Now you know how to conceive of what the problem is. And in that relief, you might even be led to sing. As I said in the introduction to this sermon, Paul is writing unto a church A very fledgling church that he's helped plant. A church that is beginning to feel the pressures of what it means to be this very odd people that really believes in a man who was God who died and rose again. They're feeling that pressure from those on the outside. They're starting to feel the pressure on those from within. And he knows what the problem is. There is this strain. And they're finding it much more difficult to love one another. Because they're not really sure if it's true. And they're certainly getting both suspicious looks, if not a little persecution on the side, for what they believe. And Paul knows what's up. And he knows what it is to be under pressure. Because he's writing this letter from prison. And not for a traffic ticket. But because he believes in the same thing that the church of Philippi does. And he knows what's true of him. 
And he knows what happens when you feel pressure from the outside. It's a lot harder to love the people with those in your community. Ever felt that way? They did. And the strain is starting to create cracks and fissures in them. And it's starting to something, something like a smoldering among them. And he's there to address the smoldering before it gets out of hand. And that smoldering among them is because of an affliction within each one of them. And it's affliction to which we are all susceptible and which is contagious like no other infectious disease. That affliction, he summarizes there very subtly in the fewest of words there in verse 3. He says, do not, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. The word there for rivalry, it's a, an idea of selfish ambition. It's this idea that you want what you want, and it's almost like nobody else is in the room, and you're going to get what you get. You're going to get what you want. Come hell or high water. It's yours. You have your agenda. You're going to pursue it. You'll go after it. And whether that's because it's just something naturally coming up within you or from strain from the outside, that's where you go. That's selfish ambition. That's an affliction within that will lead to a smoldering among. And the other thing he talks about is conceit. The the Greek word there actually means empty glory. It's where we get that very old word that you only hear in King James versions of the Bible, vainglory. Vainglory is what the, the emperor and the emperor's new clothes exhibited, right? These guys tell him, oh, we will make you the most splendid frock in the land. You wear it, they come, they measure him, they start putting imaginary things on him, and he goes, where is it? And they go, can't you see it? Until finally they convince him that they have made for him the most wonderful frock anywhere, and he walks out in his underwear, in a parade, because he's been told, I have worn the most beautiful thing anywhere, until some kid yells from the crowd, the man's naked! And he thinks to himself, maybe I am. Oh, but you know what? The procession must go on. It's called vainglory. It's having this inflated view of yourself in which you, again, think you are the only one in the room. You have your agenda. You think you're the only one that's important. And you are living because you think it's about you. And you know what? You know why we're all susceptible? Because when we come out of mommy's tummy, we become the center of their universe. Because we need absolutely everything. We can do nothing for ourselves. And so everything is done for us. And we kind of dig the attention. And we know we dig the attention because when some of that attention begins to recede, we start to chafe. We start to get unruly. We start to get nasty. And one of the ways you know that you mature is that you stop thinking you're the center of the universe. And you realize you're not. And whole storylines, whole works of fiction, whole works of literature build themselves just around that story in which that person can't quite kick the habit of thinking that they're the center of their universe. That story is as true of the emperor's new clothes. It is as true in a more modern story like Doctor Strange. Anybody see Doctor Strange? A few of you? Yes? Stephen Strange, brilliant physician, works with his hands, can do anything. He has the Midas touch. And then he has this car accident, debilitating car accident, where he loses his entire ability to practice medicine. And he thinks he's lost. He's got nothing left to live. He's got no purpose, and so he just as soon die. And then he hears this rumor about a person who had a, 
had his spinal cord severed, and yet he was walking again. He was healed, and he was healed by this, this crazy figure over in Tibet. And, and he confirms from the guy that was healed that that might be true. And so Dr. Strange, Stephen Strange, before he's Dr. Strange, goes to Tibet, finds this person who calls herself the Ancient One, and teaches him many things, and shows him how a healing might come. But at one very poignant moment in the film, she gets to the heart of what is his deepest affliction. And it goes really fast. It lasts 37 seconds. But I'm going to show you in these 37 seconds what is his deepest affliction, which may be ours too. So listen to what she says about what is his problem that is many people's problem. You have such a capacity for goodness. You always excelled. But not because you crave success, but because of your fear of failure. That's what made me a great doctor. It's precisely what kept you from greatness. Arrogance and fear still keep you from learning the simplest and most significant lesson of all. Which is? It's not about you. I don't know when that phrase entered into our uh, common conversation. It's not about you. But we've heard it enough. And we got, what does that mean? It means that you're not the center of the universe. It means that you're not as important as you think you are. It means that you're not as important as you think you have to be. It means you don't have to sort of turn your life into one big opportunity to prove something, to prove that you're important. And you hear her say, it's not, you weren't simply interested in doing something well or with excellence. It was that you were terrified of being a failure, and that's what propelled you. And when you walk in that way, it will grip you, and you will walk on everybody around you, and you will enter into your own self-imposed slavery because you think it's about you. That is the sort of thing that is beginning to affect, infect this church 2,000 years ago, and friends, let's just be honest, it is the very thing that infects each one of us, and in the church of 2019, it's because we think it's about us. We might run to all sorts of different opportunities or, or theories as to what really is driving us, and yet it is that fear of failure, it is that selfish ambition, that conceit, that the desire for vainglory that propels us to p- pursue all sorts of ends. And we take these little things that we think are important because we think that's what makes us important. Because we think we're the ones to make ourselves important. That's our affliction. And Paul is out to diagnose them and us of that affliction. Because when you know your affliction, when you have a diagnosis, oh my goodness, what freedom there is in that. What freedom there is in knowing what is the problem. What freedom there is in knowing that so many other things you thought were the problem are not. And that's one reason that leads us to begin to sing. But when you have a diagnosis, that suggests something else and gives us a second reason to sing. And therefore, our heart sings not only because we have a diagnosis, but because that diagnosis points us to a very clear remedy. If If conceit and vainglory and fear of failure and thinking it's all about you is your problem, then guess what your remedy is? You hear it in verses 3 and 4. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but, here's the remedy, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility. What's the antidote to conceit? It's humility. And you're thinking, I already knew that. Well, let's be really clear about what humility is and isn't. Humility is not self-hatred, self-loathing, self-deprecation, walking around and telling everybody just how horrible you are, even if it's true. (laughs) Humility is not that. Humility is saying that you are just not putting yourself at the center of your attention. It is believing that there might be something even more important than your own esteem, something even more important than your own importance. C.S. Lewis, in what is his most enduring work that perhaps the most people know is the work Mere Christianity. And when I read it in college and I got to chapter, whatever it is, 14 in book number three, Rock My World, because he let me know what is the greatest sin that people contend with. Ask 50 people what the deepest sin is, they might give you 50 different answers. C.S. Lewis is there to remind us all that there is one sin that is the great sin, and that is the sin of pride. The sin of conceit. The sin of thinking that you are the center of the universe and that it's all about you. Every other sin derives in part is downstream of pride. A pride that makes you think that you are important or afraid that you are not. And therefore, C.S. Lewis, as others, as Paul was saying, the solution, the antidote to that conceit, to that pride, is to embrace a humility. A humility that reflects itself and manifests itself in a really particular way that has nothing to do with self-deprecation. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes someone who is in the middle of that humility, who is demonstrating that humility in a really positive and profound way. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course. He's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will just not be thinking about himself at all. That's humility. That's the antidote to our conceit. That's freedom. Who wouldn't want that sort of life in which you are not governed by a total fixation on yourself? You are freed to think, forget about you. You're freed to actually think more about others, which is what Paul is saying. The clearest expression of humility is that you put others' interests equal to, if not greater than your own. And in that, oh, friends, in that there's a freedom. G.K. Chesterton, he helps us see, he was a, he's a British theologian and author of the, 19th, or the late 19th century, he said this, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. If you could really look at other men with common curiosity and pleasure, you would begin to be interested in them because they were not interested in you. You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played and you would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers. When life is not all about you, there's so much more to enjoy because there's so many more people that have nothing to do with you and really couldn't care less about you. 
Do you feel the freedom in that possibility? Who wouldn't want it? Who wouldn't of us admit that too often, more often than not, we feel like we are the center of our own play. We are writing our own novel. Oh, friends, it's true of pastors too. As one pastor put it, imagine, put a guy on a stage with a spotlight and a boy band microphone in his ear and then go tell him, hey, be humble. (laughs) Yeah, I'll get right on it. It's the way this world works. And it is that humility that keeps us from stepping on everybody love we love. It is humility that keeps us gr- putting our nose to a grindstone for reasons we can't even explain, except from the idea that we're afraid of being a failure or being thought of as a failure. It is humility that preserves what is between us. It is humility that gives us the freedom to enjoy others. That's the remedy. And for that, when you know that remedy, you can sing because it's not about you anymore. But as soon as I say that, as soon as I say that the remedy to our diagnosis is humility, I know full well that there is nothing I can say to you that just says, be humble. Hey, go be humble. Let me know how it goes. Paul doesn't just say, be humble. He gives us something else. He gives us a third reason why we're singing. And that third reason is, when we understand the remedy... It points us to a very clear healer. A very clear healer. And it's in this part of the passage that the song kicks in. That he starts to recite, recount, or write in real time, whatever it might have been. A hymn, a poem, a song with full of lyric and meter and rhyme and assonance and dissonance and all that stuff. He's out for singing. And here he is showing us that our need is greater than just knowing that we're driven by a fear of failure. He breaks into song because he knows that our need is greater than just being told, you know what, humility would be wonderful for you. He starts in song by singing of one who is the healer, the one who is the subject of our worship and our praise this day. He sings of Jesus, and he sings of how Jesus is that perfect model of humility for us. That Jesus is a model of humility, first of all, in what he gave up. And you hear that in verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning, here's Jesus, he's a man, he's God, get your head around that. And yet, In his deity, in his divinity, he chooses not to cling to it in such a way that he would avoid entering into human weakness. He would not take refuge in his deity in such a way as to avoid entering into our limitation. He was hungry. He was sorrowful. He was fatigued. He knew about desperation. None of that he let go of. All of that he walked into willingly. He didn't set it aside. And he did that for us. About 10 years ago, you might have heard the story about the, 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 the renowned concert violinist Joshua Bell would play every big theater, um, every big gallery throughout the world. And on one occasion in Washington, D.C., he, he dressed up like a homeless man and went into the D.C. subway. And he brought out his, you know, who knows, million-dollar violin. Uh-huh. 
and began playing in a subway looking like a homeless guy. How many thousands of people walked by him all that day thinking he was just some other homeless guy, not knowing that this is the guy that the night before at Kennedy Center sold tickets for no less than 100 bucks a seat. And by the end of the day, he made 32 bucks in tips. The person who was entitled to a much grander stage was glad to set that aside, to give over unto others what was most virtuous in him. Jesus shows us a model of humility in what he gave up. He also shows us a model of humility in what he took on. And that you hear right on the heels of what you just heard. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Jesus comes for one purpose, and that is to serve. He's born, he matures, he teaches, he warns, he heals, he confronts, he consoles, all for one purpose, to be a servant. To serve those who are in need of his service. The Son of Man, he says in Mark 10, 45, he didn't come in order to be served, but to serve. That's what he did. Everything he did was to set his interest aside and to take our interest of greater importance than his own. And he did so to a degree that none of us have and none of us can and none of us will. He came to serve. That's the persona. That's the role he came to take on. Sir Lawrence Bragg was a Nobel, Nobel or uh, let's see, Pulitzer Prize winning, rather, sorry, Nobel Prize winning um, researcher in X-ray, X-ray crystallography back in the 20th century. He won a, a Nobel Prize for it. He becomes the president of the Royal Institution of London. Um, he loved that work. He did beautifully at that work. Obviously, he's accorded with all those accolades, but he missed, of all things, gardening. You know what he did? He took a job as a gardener, day a week. And one day, he's out doing gardening for some elderly woman who invites a friend over for tea, and the person that comes over for tea recognizes who's in her backyard and says unto her, my dear, why is the Nobel laureate Sir Lawrence Bragg pruning your hedges? (laughs) He came to serve. It was not about making a name for himself. He didn't care what other people thought of him or what he was deserving, or what he was renowned for. He was just happy to go prune somebody's hedges. Jesus demonstrates a model of humility for us in what he took on. But Jesus' most important demonstration and model and example of humility is in what he submitted to. And that you hear in the most poignant verse in the whole passage, in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was born to die. And he knew that he would die. And he foretold that he would die, even though nobody got it until he died. But have you ever asked yourself the question, why was it essential that he be on a cross Why experience what was then the cruelest form of execution known to humanity? Why couldn't it have been okay for Jesus just to die in his sleep? Why couldn't it have been okay for Jesus just to be beheaded in an instant like John the Baptist? Why be subjected? Why did he have to submit to not only death, 
but the cruelest, most inhumane, most degrading form of death. What's that about? Why that form? Words can convey that, but so can also can stories. And I have some friends that want to tell you a a short story, a sketch, if you will, to kind of capture what it is that Jesus was submitting to and why that matters for us. Pastor, uh, Pastor, uh, there's someone here to see you. Who? I don't Uh, have anybody scheduled this morning. It's Carl Wallace. Oh, yeah. Carl Wallace, a billionaire. (laughs) Carl Wallace had sued his own family over stock options once. Who is it? Seriously. It's Carl Wallace. Should I send him in? Uh, uh, Yeah. Oh, no, no. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Okay, uh, yeah, send him in, send him in. Oh, hello, Mr. Wallace. Uh, hello. Welcome to the office. Uh, what uh, do you. I owe this honor? <laughs> it's about a matching gift of sorts. Oh, a matching gift? How kind. I have a seat. So uh, how did you find out about the ministry? Uh, what, what led you here today? Pastor, I've only got just a few minutes. We're going to have to cut to the chase no time for small talk. Oh, okay. okay. You and I both know that my reputation is not that great. My name's been mud in the press, and there's a lot of people that hate me and want my money, and I'm okay with that. I'm used to it. It's all part of running my business. Oh, Mr. Wallace, I'm not judging, right? We don't pass the hat around here. No one's going to ask you for money. <laughs> of course, I can just imagine my treasurer right now. And I tell her, I let a billionaire just walk in and walk out. I didn't ask for a donation. (laughs) I look at her face and she... Of course, uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, We can just talk. Good, because it's not about my money that I'm here per se. I'm more interested in other people's money. Oh, oh, well, go on. I'm intrigued. First, let me tell you about myself. uh, I don't have much time left here. The reports about me are true. I'm dying. And this may be my last business transaction. It's something I've been praying about. Yes, I do pray. Uh, It's a transaction between me and God. And you're the only witness, only you. I, I don't understand. Your church runs the Orphans Fund, right? Yeah, yeah. It uh, started here. But we're nationwide. We're in 23 countries. We're hoping to expand. But, you know, I, I'm really sorry for your situation. I mean, from my heart, I just want to let you know. I just... Thanks. I want to ask you to do something, Pastor. I want okay. you to tell the whole world that you kindly asked me for a sizable donation. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that I cursed you. And that I cursed the Orphans Fund. And that I said that everybody that's involved in it is a bunch of fools and jerks. Tell the TV reporters about it. Tell them that I threw a chair across your office as I was leaving. Wait, wait, wait. You want me to tell the TV and news reporters that you cursed the orphan fund? I don't get it. I mean, you said yourself you have enough people that hate you already. Do you remember the ALS ice bucket challenge where people poured ice buckets over their heads on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah, I raised like $100 million. It was genius. 
Well, maybe you can put my bad name to good use. Raise money for an orphan fund with your name, your, your bad name. Yeah, I don't want to be too full of myself, but I suspect that it would raise a lot of anger and donations when the world finds out about this. Billionaire Carl Wallace refu- curses the Orphans Fund and refuses to give. It might raise more money than the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Maybe people would give hand over fist because they're so angry. Yeah, but, but they'll, they'll hate you still, and they won't know what you've done. But I'll know. And this, this is what you want? Yes. Only God will know. And maybe it'll make him smile. But you can't tell anybody about it. Nobody. Or, or it won't work. And there's an anonymous check from my will for the Orphan's Fund that must be kept a secret. I, I, I know, but they'll demonize you in the press. They'll be protesters at your funeral. I mean, at your funeral, they're going to curse your name. Pastor, uh, excuse me. Pastor, there's a TV news fan in the parking lot, and there's people coming in. And... Uh, okay, uh, I, I tell them to wait in the lobby. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. Well, the reporters are coming, and I'm going to start yelling. <laughs> nice chair. Sorry. He had a transaction to make, a transaction that would mean blessing upon untold people, all of whom felt like they were orphans, who were orphans, who wanted to be known as sons and daughters. And what the billionaire does, who has everything to give, what does he do? He enters into a ruse in which he might be known as one who is worthy of a curse, that he might take upon himself the persona of a, of a criminal, of a, of a person most reprehensible and vile. Why? So that something beautiful would be done for the sake of those who are orphans. Why did Jesus go to a cruel cross upon which everybody who looked upon him was to be deterred because they wouldn't want to be thought of something so vile and reprehensible as he who would die in that most torturous form? Why? So that he might release the treasury of heaven so that he might come and bestow unto all of those who think of themselves as orphans before God and might be known as sons and daughters of the Lord. He entered into his own ignominy so that we might know that we are his. Friends, he was cursed because he had to take on our curse. Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago said, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just separate the good people from the evil people? But he says, if we're honest with ourselves, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. We look for the enemy and we find that we are he. We have that curse upon us. And for that curse, he goes and becomes a curse. And all of us who walk in shame for everything that we regret and everything that we have done and everything that is beyond our control, he enters into shame that he might redeem even our shame. And in that, he is the most profound model of humility we might know. Why did he humble himself? 
What was he out to prove? That he could be humble? No. He goes to that cross for one main reason. To gain for us what we most need, but which we could waste our whole life trying to get, knowing full well that we can't. What is it that he's come to get for us that we could not get for ourselves? And if we think ourselves the center, we'll waste our whole lives trying to find. I shared this poem with you about this time last year. It's by a guy named Raymond Carver. It's called Late Fragment. And it ended up being the very first slide you see at the film that won Best Picture five years ago, Birdman. And in that poem, he says this. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. Beloved and welcome guests, what Paul will say later to that church at Philippi is what has come over him now that he's come to see a Jesus who not only rose from the dead, but forgave Paul, who was an accomplice to murder of the church. What is it now that is different about Paul's life now that Jesus has come into his life? It's this. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There's the word, righteousness, twice. Righteousness, friends, is just a biblical word of coming to the idea where you feel like you can stand before God and believe you are in his favor. That you can stand before God in confidence that he looks upon you not with condemnation, but with delight. Righteousness is just a biblical word for believing that you, in the presence of God, can think of yourself as beloved. So beloved that he sings over you in love. That's righteousness. And that is a righteousness that does not come from you being humble. It is a righteousness that comes by faith in the one who was humble. It is a righteousness that comes not by you being driven by a fear of failure. It is a righteousness that comes by faith in the one who by everybody's account at first seemed like a failure. And then proved to everybody that they were mistaken. That's what he's come to do. And that's why we sing. Because that's why he's our healer. And if he is that healer, then that speaks to a prognosis. And that prognosis has everything to do with what God the Father did for God the Son once God the Son suffered his shame and rose to tell about it. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He died in shame. He rose in glory. And now he has a name that if you saw him, you would not wonder what he asks from you. If you reckoned with all that he did for you, you would not chafe at all that he asks from you. And therefore, your prognosis, if your faith is in that righteousness, is really simple. 
When you close your eyes in death, you are alive, you are in awe, and with great thanksgiving. That's the good news. That's the song we sing. That's the song we'll keep singing. Michael Gerson was a presidential speechwriter who, in a sermon he gave at the National Cathedral here in D.C. several months ago, spoke very openly about his own depression and how it was his faith in that righteousness that sustained him in that depression. For surely it is in our depression when we feel like we are so afflicted that we can't get our mind off ourselves. What has helped him? Many, he says, understandably pray for a strength they do not possess. But God's promise is somewhat different. That even when strength fails, there is perseverance. And even when perseverance fails, there is hope. And even when hope fails, there is love. And love never fails. How can he say that? When every one of you in this room will at some point die, how can we say that love never fails? Because there was someone else who also died who lived to tell the tale and show the scars and invite them to faith. What is that for you this day? What is the invitation for us? I mentioned the first stanza of John Updike's poem at the beginning of our service. Let me close with two more stanzas. What does this day invite of you? Listen to him. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. Let us not seek to make the resurrection less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. He's saying to us, Don't you dare turn the resurrection into a metaphor. Jesus doesn't give you that option. If this is the only hope we have in this life, Paul says, we're most to be pitied. But at some point, you're going to have to ask yourself, why then the church? Why would they die for a lie? And why does this story endure? And therefore, both John Updike and Jesus say, let us walk through the door. Because even if you're watching your world burn, what Jesus has for us is a hope that lives beyond the walls of the world. And that is our prognosis. And that is his promise. And that is why we sing. And therefore, we'll sing on.